0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them – I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
2: And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we look at the factions emerging at the heart of the Kremlin. We discuss whether America's pot policy has gone to pot. And we look at a support community which has emerged for posh men. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, Owen Matthews writes about the power struggle emerging at the heart of Putin's Russia. Owen joins us now alongside Jade McGlynn, an academic at the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies. And to start us off, can you explain where these cracks are beginning to appear in the Kremlin?
3: Well, it's not so much cracks in the administration, it's cracks... In the power vertical that sort of underpins the administration. So what we're seeing is various groups which are who are armed and somewhat scary maneuvering for power. And those groups are specifically a private military company called Wagner, which is headed and owned and set up by a man called Eufgeni who has been distributing videos online of discontented soldiers complaining about their conditions in the wake of Vladimir Putin's 21st of September mobilization. And the other one that I refer to is Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of Chechnya, the the president of the Russian Republic of Chechnya, who's also been openly criticizing the defense ministry. So the point is that you have a potentially rather scary situation where you have several in a semi-private armies who are fighting in the field in Ukraine, who are openly voicing criticism of the defense ministry and of the conduct of the war, so far. And my point is, at what stage does that criticism go up the totem pole as far as Putin? And what does Putin have to worry about and uh, the mechanisms by which he holds power? That's really the question that I pose in my piece. And,
2: and do you think Putin does have much to worry about, or do you think that a military coup isn't that likely?
3: No, I don't think a military coup is likely at all. I mean, the, 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 what I say in the piece is the reality of Putin's power is that actually he's the summit of a group of people, or he's the, the, the leader of a group of people who have held Russia, basically taken to, to take over Russia and have held power for 20 years. And those people are all very close associates of Putin's from the KGB in Leningrad in the 1970s. And the point is that Putin himself is the ultimate arbiter of all those disputes within that elite, within that clique. But beyond that, what interests those people who are behind Putin, around Putin, who are really the decision makers of Putin's Russia, is not so much who succeeds Putin or when Putin is, is replaced by somebody else it's who decides that who makes that decision because for the people and the clique around putin it's very important that they preserve their power and their capital and i think it's pretty clear that for for, for them they're going to wish to install someone from within their own ranks so these challenges that we're describing from wagner from for the, for the the private military company, from the Chechens and so on, they're actually not challenges to the status quo. They're challenges within the status quo. These guys are making a play to move up the greasy pole to get more power and money for themselves, but they're not actually challenging, you know, the power vertical of Russia itself. That's can only really be challenged by a much greater force, and that greater force is. A literal popular revolution. And my personal point of view is that a popular revolution is not going to be good news for Russia or the world.
1: Jade, so Owen mentioned there the Wagner Group and, and other groups and individuals who, who are seeking to influence the status quo, as he just said. You've written as well about how some of the more hawkish individuals within the Russian establishment are starting to influence policy do you think we should interpret the the recent strikes on Ukraine this week or Putin's more aggressive um, rhetoric about nuclear attacks and so on, should we interpret those as attempts to appease such groups and individuals?
4: I don't know that I'd necessarily say appease, but it's quite clear that we see the influence, as Owen was, was sort of des- describing, that this isn't a um, challenge against the status quo against the, the power vertical, but it's it's them sort of trying to assert their, assert a certain amount of, primacy might be too strong a word, but they're, they're trying to assert themselves among the factions. And clearly it seems to me that that is working to a certain extent. There's been considerable, I mean, I... You always feel like you're descending into sort of Cold War Kremlinology, but there does seem to be reasonably reliable accounts that the decision for po- partial mobilisation, which doesn't feel all that partial, was made under under pressure from members of the sort of more hawkish wing, and also Dmitry Medvedev, who obviously used to be seen as on the more liberal wing, but has had some kind of terrible transformation. So I think, yes, they definitely do appear to be becoming more influential. And I think in part that's because the narrative that they sell is quite a nice kind of simple one. It's that the problem isn't, you know, the war, the problem isn't anything else. It's just that the war isn't being fought hard enough. You know, we're not being cruel enough. Russia is hamstrung by its own, the Russian army is hamstrung by its own nobility towards the Ukrainians. So so we just need to to bomb them harder, that, that sort of idea, which, which sounds quite... Crazy, I think, sitting in in the UK, but of course, does not sound quite so quite so bizarre from on on Russian television screens.
1: And Jade, the GCHQ director, Sir Jeremy Fleming, has said that Russians are starting to realise that Putin's misjudged the conflict. Do you think that's true? Do you, Do you think that popular support for the for the war is, is starting to ebb, or is it is it just very hard to say?
4: You know, I don't think I've ever been convinced that there's real popular support for the war. Among the sort of people that Owen and I have just been discussing, yes, they are the real, they are the true believers, you know, they, they love the war. I think among the Russian people, it's been more of a sort of acquiescence than a, than a full-blooded support. They sort of agreed, they certainly, the vast majority of them certainly haven't opposed it, but part of the pact the whole way that sort of russian society has functioned at least until the partial mobilization is that you know you sort of you stay out of politics and so it's very hard to to, a lot of people they they sort of just just accept it they might say oh my country right or wrong you know oh we can't really know what the truth is it's a little bit more nuanced i suppose than supporting it in terms of the other aspect of of what sir jeremy fleming said I think that they are starting to realise some of the consequences. And of course, there has been a huge loss of life. However, we have a tendency in the West sometimes to think that the narrative and the way we're seeing the war is also the way that Russians are starting to see the war. And I I don't think that's true. Speaking to people, you know, a lot of people that I speak to who, who are who are for the war, but maybe are not you know, completely sort of sort of deranged talks about it. They suggest that, you know, actually there aren't really that many deserters. And regardless of whether or not there are that many deserters, the fact that they're referring to them as deserters, it just suggests, you know, a slightly different a different attitude towards those those who are who are fleeing mobilization. And
2: Owen, you talk in your piece about the mass exoduses of the urban educated, what you call protesting class. Is that class of people quite different to the FSB elite? Or has the FSB elite also been kind of affected and have they been fleeing in some respect?
3: Well, uh, Jade absolutely nailed it. I mean, it's it, it, what's really important as the bottom line for all of this is, as Jade completely correctly said, like most people are actually sort of would prefer not to think about it. They kind of wanted to go away. And last time I was in Moscow, I was in Moscow a few weeks ago, just before and just after the partial mobilization. Uh, just before the mobilization, the really striking thing was literally nobody cares. Moscow was 1 million percent normal. It was, the war was invisible. It was mind blowing the extent to which the, the profundity of the indifference of most Russian people, like sort of taxi drivers, you know, people in the market, you know, posh people, not posh people, they just don't care or didn't care until Putin decided to mobilise, which is why it was a major political risk decision, etc. But to answer your question, obviously the people who left and decided both in March at the beginning of the war, and right now in, uh, in the wake of September mobilisation, you know, they obviously do care because they care for, they don't want to be mobilised. Many of them, many of the people who left, particularly at the beginning of the war, were kind of democratic activists. They were RT people, they were journalists and so on. So what's happened, and is actually, strangely enough, somewhat parallel to what's happened in the Donbass itself in the wake of 2014 is you have like sort of de facto what amounts to ethnic cleansing. The people who are who are pro-Kiev or were pro-Kiev in Donbass. Left and went to Ukraine. The people who are left are therefore pretty much, by definition, the people who are who are on board with the with the program. And it's somewhat the same with with with, with Russia because, for instance, the last major protest that I went to in Moscow was in the winter of 2000, 2011 They had a massive protests, a hundred thousand people. I mean, which is a lot of people on the streets of Moscow protesting against Putin's return to power. That hasn't happened. Why hasn't it happened? Partly because the police have got very good at policing. That's one thing about a police state. They It's very well policed, very efficiently (laughs) policed and terrifyingly, the the, the mechanisms of repression are like terrifyingly up close and personal. They follow you home, you know, the facial recognition, they really have that down. So, and also the other obvious reason is that a huge swathe of that sort of protesting politically active political opposition, liberal opposition class has just left. They're like all in Yerevan bitching and whining and annoying the locals there' been someone just sent me a, a graffito from the, from the walls in Tbilisi, like no Russians welcome good one, good or bad so the the point is that these people are no longer physically in Moscow to protest. There have been other protests interestingly from very worrying for the Kremlin non traditional quarters so you've seen like sort of mothers of mobilized kids. Blocking loads, roads in Dagestan, and there was a shooting incident in ust Ilimsk, Actually, bizarrely enough, I've actually been to <laughs> in Siberia, where the head of a of a of a of a draft office was shot non fatally by a, a we can presume not terribly happy draftee. So I mean, th- there have been sort of patches of of discontent, sort of grassroots discontent, but in terms of the exodus, and you know, if for whatever reason the liberal intelligentsia has made a decision to sort of make a new life outside and your question was does that include the members of the broader elite that's a very important question for the following reason is that there is a very large section of the Russian elite who I think, and i you know, we, we spoke to them, you know, our colleagues, Evgenia Albats and, and, and Farid Rustamova and all those journalists speak to these people all the time, the sort of mid-ranking people who are, you know, relatively rich, you know, relatively senior in the Russian economy and in society and in the bureaucracy who are very, very unhappy. But the problem is that those people are not the people who are in charge of the security apparatus. So you have a situation whereby you have a very hawkish very powerful and very well integrated within itself, tiny elite that is prosecuting the war in favour of the war. You have a sort of largely indifferent, uh, you know, mass of the population. You have a a, a middle class, which is basically opposed, but has no power. I mean, that's my view of the situation.
1: And Jade, Owen has said in this podcast, and and says in his piece as well, that the thing that would really challenge the FSB status quo would be a sort of genuine sort of revolutionary uprising he ends the piece by saying that if there were such an uprising it will doubtless begin as the as the 1917 uprising did with with angry soldiers on remote train platforms raiding against that is the Tsar's corrupt ministers as a specialist in Russian memory studies how prominently do you think the ghost of the 1917 revolutions features do you think that sort of a a repeat of history is possible or or likely?
4: I think, like Owen, I'm I'm quite sceptical, well, I'm very sceptical, to be blunt, of the possibility of any kind of popular uprising. And part of that is because of the role of the memory of of revolution, or rather the way that that memory has been constructed is very much... You know, and in the same way as the 1990s, that anything that challenges the state, any time where the state is weak or there's some sort of overthrow of the state, then it's a nightmare. It's a complete disaster for Russia. And I mean, they don't always have history. They don't always get the history correct. But I think on that point, that that's kind of correct. Of course, it was just a disastrous time. That you, no matter what what your your feelings are on. On the on the Soviet Union or on the the Sars before them, clearly it was a very disruptive and very economic and personally difficult time for, for many Russians, both in 1917 and in and in the 1990s. Though not compare, I wouldn't necessarily compare them for obvious reasons of the civil war, but Putin has really made his mark this idea that he represents stability that he stands sort of in contrast is he's almost like a counter-revolutionary force and increasingly we started to see that in some of the communications towards the west and some of the sort of russian communications towards the west this idea you know that that russia represents sort of these traditional values opposed to a sort of degenerate west and it all ties in with this idea of of, of russia of sort of of stability but also russia is sort of a great a great power that almost represents like its own values and its own its own ideas and it, and it ties in there to come back to the the point of the the popular revolt though i also just wanted to to, to link this into the earlier question which is about the sort of the elites and of course there have been some very funny videos where sort of those Russians, young Russians who are against the war um, or anti-war journalists have been calling sort of the elite's children, people like sort of Dmitry Peskov's son, suggesting that he is being mobilised. And You know, there's all very much a sort of, don't you know who I am? Like, there must be some mistake. Clearly, (laughs) clearly I'm not being mobilised. And I do think that that's interesting because I don't want to speak specifically about Dmitry Peskov's son here, but just more generally, you know, some of these people, they are sort of, well, they're bluntly, they're in, they're in the West and they're, they're having, they have quite nice lives. And whilst MPs and those close to the Kremlin are still able to keep their families, you know, to keep their sons from being mobilised, I guess it isn't really going to affect them. And that's not a call to mobilise anybody's son. It's just, I think it's just food for thought, you know, when we, when, when we sort of make our criticisms of, of, of Russians for not doing this or that, you know, are we, are we doing everything that, that we could do?
1: Thank you, Owen and Jade. Next, Mike Adams has written about how America's cannabis experiment has been, in his words, an abject failure. He joins us now with Katja Kowalski, head of operations at the drug policy think tank VoltFast. Mike, do you mind us telling our listeners a little bit about where you think the experiment has failed?
5: Okay, sure. I think it's fairly simple. Ten years ago, we started legalizing on a statewide basis in Colorado, and everything seemed like it was going to, you know, move along perfectly fine. But then, you know, 10 years later, we've seen, you know, as other states start to legalize, the black market has really continued to thrive and and not just in the way that it used to, it's really picked up a lot of momentum. Basically, the cartels have relocated to America, as I mentioned in the piece, and they're using the shadows of the, the legality in states like California and Colorado and whatnot, to basically stage their operation and run drug trafficking rings across America. And so like in places like Indiana, which is where I'm from, we're getting all those all the same products that the people are allowed to buy on a retail level in, in California.
1: And how much do you think this is a disparity between state and federal law? And what do you say to the argument that if, if cannabis was legalized... In America, on a federal level, that many of these problems would go away.
5: Yeah, and then I used to think that too. I was I was part of that school of thought. Like basically, the only reason the black market seems to thrive is because our federal government has decided that they still want to keep it illegal. So it l- provides plenty of opportunities for black market operations to to do their thing. I think where I've come on this uh, on this particular subject at this point is that well like back when alcohol prohibition was repealed you know it took a long time for every state to jump on board with that it wasn't just you know everyone wasn't just all in and i think that's going to be the case here also mentioned in the article like with canada they went full steam legal nationwide and their black market is strong as ever i think we what's different is you know we're just talking about a plant and anyone with space to grow some can it's, it's really, that's the only people that it has value to are the people without the land to grow it. And so, so, you know, now we've gotten into a, in a situation where there's so much surplus that it's really just, doesn't have any value. It's, so I, I really think, yes, I think the uh, federal legalization, I think it may solve some of the problems, but I don't think it will completely cut out the black market. And like the people, the people are just in California, you know, very few of them, (laughs) in fact, are using the legal market. I would would almost venture to say that most of the legal market is being given life by tourists. And, you know, once everything goes legal everywhere else, that's all going to fade away. There's no beer tourism, really, in America. Occasionally, people pop in and check out certain breweries and whatnot but it's not a it's not a huge thing not like the the weed is so yeah i i I don't really think that's going to be the fix i think they'd like to think that that's going to do the trick but it it really won't i i again people are still going to these criminal organizations are still going to grow it and they're still going to do their thing and the people that rely on the streets are not going to have to pay taxes and I think that's the big thing. No one wants to pay 40 to 50 percent tax. I don't know if there's any way around that once federal legalization takes over.
1: Katya, I wonder how you would respond to Mike's arguments there. I mean, particularly the point about how legalization, even on a national level, as we've seen in Canada, as Mike said, doesn't get rid of some of the problems of criminality. I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that argument.
6: Yeah so I think I, I do echo and kind of um agree with a lot of points that Mike has made and I think your your article really touches on a lot of you know a lot of truth and problems with cannabis legalization. I do think it's really important to highlight the fact that cannabis legalization isn't simple and in many ways you know the hard work and the challenge begins once you change the law. I think we're seeing across the globe that Countries and states are coming to terms with the fact that prohibition has been a massive failure. And, you know, that, that's kind of one of the reasons why we're seeing this tidal wave of reform over the last few years. And I think the, the conversation is shifting more towards whether we should legalise and more towards how we do it. And I think across states in America and in Canada, and we've seen you know Germany announce that they're going to have a, a legal recreational market. They're kind of under discussions now around what that actually looks like. It's a bit of a trial and error um, with cannabis being prohibited for such a long time. We're not going to get it right at first. And, you know, the the black market, the illicit market is is a beast. And I think it, it would be idealistic and quite utopian to assume that legalizing cannabis will just get rid of all of the issues kind of overnight. Is you know implementing the policy bit is is the really it's it's the tough part, and I'd like to, you know, I, I think that every policy kind of has a side effect. There's a negative consequence, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't implement it. Is l- looking at you know some of the issues and teething points that we still have with a legal market in the U.S. Obviously, federal legalization is definitely kind of a a barrier to a lot of the issues we're seeing, but. You know, I think that there's still a lot of good to have come out of it, particularly around, you know, not criminalizing users, keeping it out of the hands of children. We have seen youth access decrease and just general harm reduction tactics, safer methods of consumption. So, yeah, I think there's there's still definitely issues. I think there's no question that legalization hasn't been done perfectly. But I don't think I'm not sure what the alternative would be, because I think that, you know, prohibition has caused so much harm and damage. And I think it's quite easy to criticise legalization, but you know, how, what's the what would the alternative be in that case? So,
1: so Katja, I just wonder if you if you don't mind, as an advocate for legalization in, in, in some form, which countries do you think have got it most right, or are getting it right in their in their process?
6: I think, I mean, yeah, I think no country has do- done it perfectly correct to this point. I think Canada is probably the closest to a success story that we've seen obviously as mike mentions there is still an illicit market i believe it was about last year that the the legal market has just started to outrun the illicit one you know no illicit market is better than an illicit market but that takes a really long time i think that the canadian model you know really has a strong focus on public health which is incredibly important restrictions on advertising very strict in that regard and a, and a focus on kind of keeping it out of, keeping out of the youth access. I think one of, one of the kind of issues with the Canadian market is still that taxation problem. We're seeing that kind of issue in America. Um, and I think it's about, I think once you legalize, it's more about finding the, finding the perfect way in terms of outrunning the illicit market initially to bring as many consumers on board with the legal one shifting and changing policy once you've done that.
1: Mike, I wonder if you could tell our our listeners, who are mostly, of course, British listeners, a little bit about President Biden's announcement last week of his federal pardon for thousands of people who have been charged with cannabis usage across the states. I wonder, firstly, do, do you think that that's a sign that the US is heading for a full federal legalization. And secondly, I just want to get your opinion on this. We had in another Spectator podcast, the Americano podcast last week, uh, Madeline Kearns said that she thought she saw this legalization as a cheap attempt to secure a section of the Democratic vote. Do you think that is a too cynical uh, interpretation of, of last week's announcement?
5: No, I, I think it's it's probably... Uh, I'd first like to say that you know I do not support people going to jail for marijuana. I I'm actually a a a fan of pot. You know, it's so my point in the article was not to demonize marijuana at all. It's basically just saying you know the legalization aspect is not working. But in respect to Biden's announcement last week, yeah, I think it was politically motivated because his pardon was for simple possession of those federally convicted of this crime, which will, you know, it'll remedy about 6,500 people, clear their records, and that's all fine and good, but these people never went to prison. These were people that probably got busted with a joint on the Lincoln Monument or something, you know, something just really dumb. So it was no real feat of excellence. It sounded good when it first came out. Every news outlet went, went with it. And uh, it sounded like a a huge, huge uh, step in the right direction. But again, nobody that went to prison is being released. So it was more of a, I think, politically driven. On the side note of that is his announcement to uh, bark an assessment of the Schedule 1 classification. I think that holds more weight. But also, you know, that's been done before. And it's always come back. No, we're just going to keep it Schedule 1 dangerous drug. Don't mess with it. It'll kill your kids, that sort of thing, which, you know, it won't. So I guess the short answer is no, I don't really think that Biden's announcement means anything like I don't think that it means that we're any closer to federal reform. You have to take in consideration to Congress, and it is a mess, man. We've got the Democrats in the driver's seat of the Senate, and they can't get anything done because it's too evenly split. And uh, of course, the House is still uh, Republican dominated. So nothing in terms of national policy is getting pushed through anytime soon.
1: And Katja, I wonder, do you see cannabis legalization ever becoming a reality here in the UK last week? Home Secretary Suella Braverman announced that she wanted to reclassify cannabis as a class A drug, which seems like it's going in the sort of opposite direction. I mean, if that were to ever happen. I mean, what what do you make of her comments? And and how do you see the situation in the UK?
6: Yeah, I feel like the situation in the UK is a really interesting one. I feel like obviously, there's a lot of political pressure and instability at this moment in time. And Suella Suella Braverman coming out in favor of reclassifying cannabis as a class A is obviously incredibly frustrating, but like Mike said about Biden's statement, I think this statement was incredibly politically motivated. Since Suella Braverman came out with kind of this reclassification statement, Liz Truss has confirmed that it will not, in fact, be reclassified to Class A, and there's no kind of there's no interest in doing that within government now. So I think. That's obviously, it's good to see that it won't in fact be reclassified. There's 77% of the UK population doesn't want to see it reclassified, according to a YouGov poll a few days ago. So, you know, I'm I'm not worried about the reclassification of cannabis to harsher laws, but I am worried about what this means for further reform in the UK, because it does feel like we are kind of going backwards. I think a lot of it is fueled by political rhetoric rather than evidence. And I'm not sure whether, you know, people in the Tory party actually believe that, you know, cannabis should be a class A drug and whether they actually believe that we should continue with prohibition. But I feel like there's this, there's this feeling and that, you know, By saying these things in the media, um, it will kind of draw on kind of the classic social conservative lines. And that's what classic social conservatives want to want to hear and see and say. And I just think it's interesting that we saw this coverage around wanting to reclassify it as a, a class A But with this kind of these YouGov stats and trust coming out stating that it won't in fact happen, there wasn't nearly enough as much coverage around that. And I think we've, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen this in the UK with the UK's drug strategy that was released in December last year. When you actually read through the strategy, it's quite liberal, actually. It's a move towards not criminalizing users, taking a more health-based approach, reinvesting in treatment, focusing on diversion. So you know, really all quite promising things for drug reform, you know d- despite not kind of focusing on legalization, it is moving in a in a good d- direction, I think in the u k for drug reform generally. However, I think all of this is packaged up in political rhetoric and media sensationalism with the media essentially simply focusing on taking away people 's passports for um, for middle class cocaine users so i think there's there's all of these kind of positive bits of reform that are being packaged in sensationalist rhetoric terms that make it seem like we're a lot further behind than we are we've got you know Sadiq Khan who's interested in cannabis wanting to examine the evidence base around legalization to kind of understand what has and hasn't worked although this doesn't really have any political power or clout I think it is still interesting and important that people are coming out in in government around this issue I think it is really just a, a question of a discrepancy between political and public opinion. There's pretty strong public support, which has continued to grow in the UK. It stands at around 52% across the nation, and I think it's around 60% in London around the fact that our current approach isn't working and people want to see cannabis reform happen. Whereas I feel like politicians have been so distanced from the issue, they still think it's a lot more controversial and morally charged than it is.
1: Thank you, Mike and Katja. Finally, should we pity privileged men. In this week's magazine, Damien Riley speaks to the co-founders of the support group The Privileged Man, a community for posh men to talk about their struggles. He joins us now along with Esmond Baring, co-founder of the group. Damien, can you tell us a bit about how you found out about The Privileged Man and why you wanted to write about it?
0: Yeah, so a friend of mine announced the other day that he was taking part in the the privileged man group and he was going on a weekend retreat and he was taking part in the Zoom calls and I was kind of astonished because the name the privileged man is so sort of upfront about what it's trying to do and we hear so much in society about the iniquities and the evils of privilege and particularly white privileged men so I was intrigued by this group which seems to purport to tell the other side of the story which is to talk about the difficulties men with privilege have. I thought it was intriguing.
2: And Esmond, you are the co-founder of the group, The Privileged Man. Can you give listeners a little bit of background on the community, what it's all about and, and why exactly you started it?
7: Yeah, The Privileged the Man was was founded out of my experience of, of working through a 12-step recovery programme and realising the power of honest and vulnerable sharing around emotional dysfunction and by emotional dysfunction i mean the inability to articulate or even understand what the felt experience of life is and was and the principles about being in one of these rooms are to be in a an environment of acceptance love understanding uh, and empathy also at the same time having an element of challenge to take responsibility for aspects of self that can't be noticed and so I had a profound experience in these circles, and when I came out of of that, I realized that I wasn't alone in, in the level of dysfunction within society of the ability to be availed to healthy emotional expression. And so I lit a fire in Bali in April 21, and I invited a group of men to come, and we set the context in the container for what the guidelines would be for sharing around the fire. Men started opening up men started opening up around their depression, their anxiety, suicidal ideation. And in the sharing and expression around the fire came a degree of healing and a discovery that men weren't alone.
2: And can I ask how you define privilege? Because reading the piece, it sort of feels like a lot of the men went to British boarding schools. I mean, is that, is that kind of one, something that kind of brings everyone together or is it more to do with wealth?
7: Yeah, it has nothing to do with wealth whatsoever. I, I was born into material. I was born in Wiltshire, raised in Hampshire, and I went to boarding school here in the UK. So I was raised around privilege. I was raised into privilege. That's who I was born into. And the privilege we see around the fire is is through connection and friendship and the willingness to actually really express who we truly are underneath many of the societal dictates of who and how we should be. So it's an opportunity to be in a safe environment and, and be fully authentic and expressive around the struggles and the pressures and and the realities of life uh, in an honest and and healing manner.
1: uh, Damien, you say in your piece that there are some who who might mock the support group, uh, since it is for men who, by a definition, privileged. But do you see the group as something as a uh, course correction for a lot of the discussions about, as you put it earlier, the the evils of privilege? Or, Or do you think that there might be a point to some of the mockery?
0: I think there certainly will be some people who mock it and Esmond's quite upfront about that, as is Pete. However, I think also there is a certain truth in the, the fact that the experience of being sent away to a boarding school, which, as Pete discusses in the piece, is profoundly traumatic, It it goes without saying. And if any group of people who go through a trauma want to try and heal from it afterwards, it sort of makes sense that they would congregate together so that could be if coal miners wanted to talk about the hardships of being down coal mines, it would make sense for them to come together and do that t- together. And I think it's the same thing here, maybe. The, the privileged men had similar experiences, and so they can come together and talk about them and perhaps do some healing.
2: And Asmund, how do you respond to criticism of the group and people who might say, well, privileged men aren't really victims here? What, what would you say to that?
7: I would say that mental and emotional health requires no definition into a subgroup or a microcosm of society. And if any man or woman is is suffering and needs to get help, then healing circles or whatever help they can get be made available to them. Just coming in response to Damien's comment about sense of identification and safety, it's a huge part of settling uh, the autonomous and sympathetic nervous system to feel safe enough for the body to do the healing it needs to do and to find the expression of, of deep traumas that can lie in the system. And criticism, I mean, criticism, that's none of my business really. We're trying to do a good thing to help men who are really struggling with their loneliness and anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation, like I said, find some relief.
1: And, and do with, with the men who come to, to your group, do you get a sense that they're, are they suffering despite privilege or does privilege, privilege, or perhaps a side of privilege, add to the sense of suffering and loneliness?
7: I think, echoing what Damien said before, being sent away to a a hostile environment in the sense that you're sent away to boarding school at eight years old, and the warmth and the nurture and the love that a young child of that age still requires in their development might contribute at that young age to some emotional (laughs) stunting and a, a prevention of emotional maturation. Uh, that then leads to men who are growing up into the world unable to access more tender feelings from their hearts such as compassion and kindness and and self-acceptance and love and if if a man or a woman or anyone is carrying around feelings of of shame and and guilt and self-hatred and this can without ownership of can spill out into the world and into the family and into the community and into the society so we're trying to help men take responsibility for their experience, find some safety to express themselves, and then take some responsibility for their healing.
2: And, Aswin can you tell listeners a little bit about how membership works to the privileged man group? Damien mentions in his piece that it costs just under £2,000 annually to, to become a member. Is it... I mean, does that act as a sort of barrier to entry to check people are privileged enough to be part of it?
7: Mm, not in the slightest... I think what Damien didn't write about in the article was that actually men pay £195 a month or... £1,995 a year if they want to sign up for a year's membership, but all of the men in the group currently subscribing pay monthly. And no, there is no financial, what do you want to say, filter for allowing men in. And approximately 70% of the men currently in the community probably have a boarding school background, but 30% don't. And the realisation of what true privilege is of this group is it doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, how much money or not we don't have, It's the connection and the community of men coming together and doing healing work is the real privilege.
2: Thank you, Damien and Esmond. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've discussed. I'm Laura Prendergast, and for the next few months, I'm going to be away on maternity leave, but I'll be leaving you in the very capable hands of my colleague, William Moore.
1: Well, we'll miss you very much, Lara. I'm William Moore, and I do hope you'll join me next week.